Shit Platypus says, episode 40. Comedian Dave Chappelle is receiving major flack for his new stand-up bit on Netflix. Critics have said The Closer ridicules trans people. A writer and co-showrunner on the Netflix series Dear White People quit working at the streaming giant over Netflix's decision to stream Chappelle's special. Another trans Netflix employee sparked debate about the comedy special and was suspended along with two other employees for reportedly trying to attend a director-level meeting they weren't invited to. And Chappelle has seemingly embraced the uproar over his special, telling The Hollywood Reporter, well, if this is what being canceled is like, I love it. So everyone's going wild about the latest Dave Chappelle show. The Closer, yeah. Uh, yeah, the Netflix has come under some, some heat. Uh, I think it escalated, especially because its own employees um, did a, a virtual walkout. I don't know if you read about this. Well, I know that one of their executive producers stood by um, Chappelle when people started to have a meltdown, right, over this latest Netflix special. And he was like, well, we're going to host different opinions or whatever on Netflix. And he kind of defended it. And after which some employees at Netflix staged a walkout. I think there was a protest outside Netflix with about 100 people or so. And then Netflix kind of doubled down a bit and was like, sorry if we hurt anyone. I guess Netflix got some heat, especially because they suspended some of these people that were acting out in protest against the show. But I don't know. It's it's kind of a lot about nothing. Um I, I don't know. I, I feel a bit tired of this narrative. I also wondered, like, I saw the show, and like, some of it was funny. I thought that the bit about his friend was, I mean, sad, tragic. Um, so for those of you who haven't seen the show, uh, Dave Chappelle had a trans friend who was a comedian uh, he was supporter of her career. Uh, they opened for him for several of his shows. And um, when his special came out on Netflix, the first one, this person stood up for him. And I think she just goes by she, actually. So she stood up for Dave Chappelle and got a lot of shit online because of it. And so much so that people were telling her to kill herself. And then this person committed suicide. Daphne Dorman? Daphne Dorman, yeah. So Daphne committed suicide. And and so a big chunk of the show at the end, towards the end, is just like Dave recalling this story. And I felt kind of uncomfortable with it at the beginning because I was like, is this one of these situations where people are like, I have a black friend too, you know? And I'm like, okay, you have a trans friend. And then as he went on and the story went on and went on and went on, I was like, okay, there's got to be a point to the story. And of course, it's the fact that Daphne kills herself. And, and he's, you know, kind of pointing fingers saying like, what kind of community is this that, um, yeah, that you bully people? I don't know. Yeah, he says something like, whatever psychological issue she had going on, I'm sure being dragged on social media didn't help, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's sad. I Yeah, I'm also tired of this narrative. I didn't think it was his greatest work, but... um. Yeah. Yeah, I feel a malaise at the kind of spectacle that is the um, reaction to... the overwrought reaction to Dave Chappelle's stand-up. It's boring. 
it's boring, but then also I'm starting to get tired of how, I don't know. I, so the most controversial thing that he says is I'm a turf, like I'm team turf. Gender is a fact is another thing that I've, that people right. were super upset about. Right. Gender is a fact. I'm team turf. Um, you know, trans women's genitalia are not quite real. Like that's, you know, so he like really takes it to its ultimate extreme. And I felt like that part was a bit cheap. I don't know. It just like, I get it's like Dave being Dave and he's just like, I'm just saying what I'm going to say. But like, while Usually his provocations are interesting to me and um, like reveal a certain ambivalence about how to think about things. Like this time, it's almost as if like, I'm taking this position. Listen, like I'm on this team. I'm on this team. And then the way this he quote unquote like softened it was by saying like, but I have a trans friend too. And she would have laughed at my jokes. So jokes on you, ha. Huh? And it just felt so polarized that there was no nuance and like there, he had some good jokes it, it, but it felt a lot more like I'm gonna I'm gonna preach about like who I am here because you guys have been putting me under attack you know it's the same thing that happened with Louis CK like his stand-up after he got canceled was like super bitter right like these guys just get I super kind of mad. enjoyed it the Louis CK <laughs> I, I enjoyed it too, but then it just like, it's like a one trick pony. Like, because I enjoyed it for reasons that are obvious, which is that like, yeah, these people suck and they have authoritarian traits. And so speaking out against them is this release. But as far as comedy is concerned, I don't know. Yeah. What it made me think about the kind of like gender is a fact thing that you've just described when he kind of like came in and he was like, I'm team turf, gender is a fact, whatever. There's like, is this kind of obsession like that you see on the alt-right being obsessed with like science and fact and biological gender. And it's like, it's a fact. It is just, there are men and women, like whatever. And, and then on the other side of that, you have the completely humorous kind of brittle ID poll stuff where it's, I am a woman and you will think I'm a woman, right? Like this, so there's this kind of, obsession on on both sides that is of interest you know yeah it's a kind of flattening that makes things boring sort of uninteresting yeah it's not so good so i don't know like i heard doug lane's uh conversation with uh who was the comedian some comedian dude some comedian he didn't make me want to listen to his material the comedian he really did not i don't remember his name but sorry dude but like one thing that i thought he said it was just, just like, yeah, this has really become like a genre of comedy now. You know, like making fun of the people that cancel. And that's true. Like, you know, there's a sense where at one point things feel refreshing and new and kind of breaking with taboos. And Dave's special has this kind of stale quality to it now. Um, he's kind of leaned into the cliches of the critique of cancel culture to the point that it's, um, you know, he was like, I'm a feminist. Like, if you look it up in the dictionary, like, he was like, I'm a feminist. He's like, I support women's equality. Like, you know, no, no, no. It just felt really preachy. I, I, that's part of it. Like, I just like, get off your fucking soapbox. Like, I don't, you know, just too much. Yeah, that we're being too hard on Dave Chappelle and that 
and that might be the case. But um, it got like a huge amount of hits. I mean, like it's one of the most seen specials of all time on Netflix. That's the other thing that that um, this stuff people want to watch it, and and it makes me feel like the people that are poo pooing it are in a much smaller minority than than the people that the actually silence. just like subscribe and watch it, right? Yeah, I feel like there is the silent majority who's not into this, like, liberal fragility stuff, who's kind of over it, but who's over it in a way in which, like, they don't feel like they can talk about it. They watch the denunciations of it online and enjoy that, live vicariously through Dave Chappelle's anger. Something's got to give. I am... Maybe that's my frustration, because now it's not even creating good art. I saw the show. I laughed. You know, I was not into like this lengthy ending that turned into a lifetime movie. Sorry, that's kind of how it felt. Just this really tragic story that kind of went on and on and on. And I was like, what is happening here? I get it. He suffered a personal loss. It sounds like this was a really good friend of his. And I, I understand, but it's almost like he... I don't know if this was conscious, but it was like an attempt to be like, I am not your enemy. Like, I'm not your enemy. I just like think these things, but I understand that you're going through a human experience and I'm just being me and you need to just accept me for me, which is like, fair enough. But I just don't want to hear you make comedy just about that. Yeah. Yeah, I felt there was a little bit like a bit of ambivalence on Chappelle's side, this kind of like toing and froing with not apologizing, but al- almost kind of veer- like flirting with apologizing for upsetting people. But then, you know, he ends it in in also like a strange thing because he was approached, you know, one of the stories that he tells in the show is that he was approached by a mom and then then her daughter who's trans and then they got really mean on him and they're like stop punching down on our people and after telling this whole story about Daphne and what happened to his friend he he just says like he's speaking for like his community and he is including Daphne in his community and he says stop punching down on my community so he turned it into this like you're on my side you're on their side and i'm just like not interested in that in the communities yeah i liked it i liked it when it was just like dave chappelle as a fly in the ointment you know like as a fly in the ointment and then they're like don't know what to do with that like what's he actually think what's he saying you know I think the funniest thing, the funniest thing that he said is, um, I'm here to negotiate the, the release baby. of the baby. Yes. <laughs> yeah, me too. Like, don't abort the Remember, baby. taking a man's livelihood is akin to killing him. I'm begging you, please do not abort the baby. <laughs> don't abort the baby. And also the kind of they, it, they, them stuff was funny. Or they, how many they's? How many they's? I forget. Okay. Yeah. But honestly, like now, because I didn't rewatch it for a conversation. I've just watched it once and it was like a week ago or something. I can't honestly remember that many jokes, which probably means that like, that's the one I remember, you know? So not a lot of iconic stuff. 
All right. Well, um, why did you send me that video of Kamala Harris talking about space? Because it's been like ridiculed online and NASA have had to turn the comments off. And the, the kids in it, there are all these there are all these kid actors and they all kind of play like like multiracial kids throughout the US that are like interested in space. And um, and it's kind of cool. Like they go to an observatory and they're going to build a telescope and there's all these books and they're like, cool, cool, so cool. And they meet Kamala because she's, I don't know, involved in the US. I don't know, somehow involved in the US space program. Yeah, she's the head of the US space program or something. I don't know, because her mother was a scientist. Yeah. She sounds drunk. They sit down with her to have a conversation about space travel or whatever. And then she tells them, you, you got to realize it's all about telling people who you are. So the first thing she tells them is like this identity politics shit. Yeah. Don't let anyone tell you who you are. You are who you are. And she's like, bitch, what does that have to do with space? Yeah, I know. And then I was like, <laughs> I was kind of into it at this point, despite the kid actors, whatever. I was yeah. like, cool. And then I was like, no. <laughs> no, what the fuck is she? And she sounds so drunk. She's yeah. like, let me tell you about my mom was a scientist. And I went with her <laughs> to the office. We stayed so late. Yeah. <laughs> what is happening? If, if SNL was good, I mean, that's a skit right there. That is a skit right there. Uh, yeah, SNL's not been great. Um, anyway, so Dave Chappelle's stale, SNL's still shit, Kamala Harris still wants to send you to jail. You right to jail. Nothing yeah. else. That's the update. And I guess watch out if you have uh, transactions over $10,000 in your bank accounts because the Biden administration is watching you. <laughs> Careful, <laughs> Americans. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> I think that's it for us. Yeah, enjoy the rest of the episode. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Shit Platypus Says. My name is Sophia Freeman and I am one of your co-hosts. In this one-part episode, I catch up with the makers of the Alpha Bunga Bunga podcast to discuss their new book, The End of the End of History. We talk about their characterization of anti-politics and questions concerning the importance of Hegel for the left. I'm here with George Huari and Alex Hokuli of the Alpha Bunga Bunga podcast. Um, and they also co-host this with Philip Cunliffe, who couldn't be here this evening. But thanks for being here, guys. And it's nice to see you. And thanks for coming on to Shit Plus Process. Thank you for having us. Yeah, no problem. Uh, we've had Philip on before. We had him on with his, like, Lenin Lives book, right? So your new book, The End of the End of History, Politics in the 21st Century was published this year by Zero Books. And I mean, you can buy it on Amazon. That's where I bought mine. And all good book retailers, I guess. Yes, and bad ones too. I've been having a read and um, I thought we would just kind of touch on some topics. And it's very timely as well, um, a timely read. So I thought it'd be great to have you guys on the podcast. Maybe in a couple sentences, like literally a couple sentences, you could introduce the book and then very briefly as well, like how you each came to the left. So... Since putting the finishing touches to the book, which was now maybe over a year ago, and looking back on it, I can confirm that it's still entirely relevant, every single word. So that's important to note because it's a history of the present. 
So there's always the risk that events overtake what uh, insights you put in the book. But basically the idea of the book, or at least what motivated us to do it, was that we had been developing a set of ideas over the course of four years of the podcast since early 2017, remarking on the fact that the world that we had grown up in and come of age in, the kind of world of post-politics, of technocratic managerialism, was falling apart, and that politics seemed maybe possibly to be coming back, and that that was actually possibly an exciting moment, even though many people seemed to be losing their heads over it. So in a moment of a real lack of ideological clarity, uh, we hope to at least provide some clarity. Um, and especially because a lot of the interpretive frameworks, I think, that we have inherited from the past no longer really apply to uh, the current material reality. Um, a lot of the people who identify as one thing no longer really seem to adhere to the ideas that we thought they should ad- adhere to. And so in this kind of very confused moment, we thought, OK, it's important. Well, we think it's important what we've done over the podcast. But, you know, there's an element of ephemerality to podcasts that it just disappears into the air. And so we wanted to kind of nail it down and, and, and put things down in print. Um, and I think we're, we're pretty pleased with the results. And how did you both come to the left or to consider yourself on the left? So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, just to add to what Alex said about the book and the, and the podcast, I think 2016, that was a key date for the book. And, the you know, we started the podcast after that. And this is what we see as a kind of dividing line between the end of the end of history and the end of history which preceded it. And to, yeah, how did I personally come to the left? I guess, like many people through through student politics, and then I think being in, in Britain, obviously the, the Labour Party plays a big big role in this, and we're, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about, about Corbyn, so we can get into some of that. So with uh, with the title of the book, you're obviously taking up this Francis, Francis Fukuyama moment from his work in 1989 the end of history and why why are you taking this up or how do you feel that this bears on the present today we take that point because it's i suppose an easy shorthand for the historic defeat of the working class and so it's the end of the soviet union not that the soviet union can be identified ipso facto with uh, the working class movement but it obviously uh, is the end of the moment in which there was an actual alternative to capitalism that actually existed, um, whatever degenerated form it actually took. And that also domestically within, especially within the core capitalist countries, uh, the working class movements were defeated, their organizations started crumbling. Um, and that was kind of a, a definitive moment. You take 1989, of course, these things are part of a longer process and the undoing of the left. And I know you, you guys on Platypus are very concerned with the various stages of defeats and so on. But at least as concerns, not just the fate of the working class or the fate of socialism, but arguably the fate of politics <clears throat> itself is so tied up with that 1989 moment that we kind of seized on that. And we seized on uh, Fukuyama's proclamation of the end of history as something that's actually important and that can be bought into without any of the triumphalism that people impute to Fukuyama. Yeah, I think the, you know, so this 1989, it's, a, it's I think, for us, quite an important dividing line between this period of, of the Cold War, when you had, you know, liberal democracy, hegemonic, and then our model, at least, is, you know, as Alex said, the symbolic defeat of working class project in which comes to fruition in 1989 or that's one way to read it you then get the end of history so you get this period of like I guess it's or we experienced it um you know growing up in that period as well like 1989 to 2016 as a really 
kind of exhausted, quite sort of depressed cultural um, moment, a lot of depressive hedonism and apathy and, you know, anti-globalization stuff. So I think we wanted to like, we wanted to say that this period, which starts in 1989, is somehow finished in, in 2016 with Brexit and Trump. I mean, the it's important to call it the end of the end of history, because, you know, you have this this period, which, you know, we, we sort of modify a lot of the claims that Fukuyama makes, but there is a new a new period now from from 2016 to the present or you know we explore this in the book like what are the contours of this but I think it's you know it names the thing that's just finished or the thing that had just finished when we sort of came to the podcast and then doing the book. When I was thinking about this like Trotsky came to mind and the moment that he lived through with the kind of the consolidation of the revolution under Stalinism like its failure and thus consolidation he tried to uphold this like a dialectical perspective on stalinism that it um that it like dialectically pointed beyond itself rather than becoming kind of like for or against stalinism he tried to kind of make this this point that social relations within like exist like existing communism in, in stalinist russia pointed beyond themselves as they as they did throughout the capitalist world that they were still in crisis although stalin kind of tried to like gloss this over and claim victory of the revolution where does that kind of sit with this i just found it f- the funny the kind of 1980 why the 1989 moment well i guess it's it's a, it's a good question like where do you identify the defeat because i think the reality of today that the you know the working class is disorganized demoralized and and defeated i think anybody who who denies that is it's living in a different world to the one that i'm living in at least but yeah when where do you date that symbolic defeat and how do you kind of create that periodization I think the, you know, to go into, not to go too much into some of the theory, but I think um, James Hartfield, at least from my point of view, James Hartfield's book, The Death of Subject Explained, I think is a really fantastic account of some of this, like how was the, in the British context, how was the working class defeated in in the 80s? And then what did this mean for, for theory, for, for culture and for politics um, around the turn of that kind of like 80s? Um, into the 90s I mean another way you could you could start to say is this is when the the effects of the neoliberal revolution counter-revolution really started to to um to to bite but I think yeah I mean it's it's a it is a it's always a political question like how do you where do you start this defeat because that uh working backwards from that those are the factors that you think are crucial to that defeat and obviously to the response to it Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and to take up your question also, I mean, I think as we acknowledge in the book, you know, there was talk of the end of ideology or even the end of politics in the early 50s, right? So in the shadow of Daniel the Bell. Second World War and the shadow of the Holocaust, uh, this new very conformist society that emerged uh, in the wake of, uh, in, well, in the, yeah, in the, in the wake of that massive break in the, in the middle of the 20th century. And I think people probably underestimate, I think, or people often forget that the conformity of that period really was in contradistinction to what came before and, you know, even at the social level in terms of family life and everything else. But nevertheless, there was still it was still an age of mass politics in which people were more or less largely, you know, herded into, um, that's maybe not the right metaphor, but, you know, herded into large organizations of one form or another, uh, voluntary organizations, political parties, trade unions, and so on. So even if Stalinism and then fascism represent a obviously declining historical horizon, a declining horizon of freedom and a defeat for the left, there's still the possibility of politics, I think, throughout the Cold War period. 
and what the end of the Cold War represents really is a kind of a, a, a much more definitive defeat of, of politics, of mass politics especially. And I think um, we're trying to figure out, not just ourselves, I mean all of us are trying to grasp what it means to maybe have politics in an age without mass politics, if such a thing is possible. And I think that's, a, that's the root of a lot of the confusion of our political times. So... Is 1989 that, you know, was everything good before 1989 and now and then everything afterwards is bad? No, there's obviously, you know, it's a kind of tendential decline, but um, there it does mark an important moment in terms of at least the end of, of mass politics. Yeah, I think, sorry, just to, to jump in quickly on that, the, the yeah, I think that's, that's a, something which I should have said in my initial answer is this this idea of the, the, the void of representative politics, this idea that comes from, the political scientist Peter Bear, among other kind of sources, that yeah, I mean, like even participation in informal politics, such as voting, party memberships, all this stuff during that period of, of the Cold War, just really, particularly from the seventies onwards, starts to just decline precipitously. And then combined with that, you have this, you have this really symbolic defeat. And this, you mentioned Phil's book, Lenin Lives. I mean, one of the ideas there, which I think is absolutely right, is that this symbolic resolution of of class struggle deprives like because it had already been you know happening before this period but deprives the the capitalist class of all any of any dynamism without that kind of alternative there's that kind of i don't know the progressive aspect of, of the capitalist class becomes um uh, ever more difficult to see in the in the period of the 90s uh, onwards you say in the book you say that with the emergence of podemos and syriza and then sanders and corbyn that a new left enthusiasm and energy was injected into the decrepit parties, which I took to be Labour and the Democrats. And then this enthusiasm le uh, led you to start a podcast or a revival of politics that you've touched on. And then before the, these these moments, you talk about the delusions of a, a left changing the world without taking political power, or that these these delusions were, were being overcome, maybe. And so I'm, I'm wondering what these phenomena that I've just brought up like mean for the left, if we consider ourselves like on the left. I think one thing I would say is that, you know, we have to look at these things from the extremely low historic base from which we started, right? So the period of 19, 1990s and 2000s was in terms of the capacity for even the existence of a left worse then than at any stage since probably the 1830s or something, 1840s. So in that context, the... And in and, and a context in which the dominant ideas were horizontalism, um, you know, kind of vague forms of anarchism uh, and lifestyle politics, the forms of left populism that emerged over the course of, 2000, uh, of the 2010s, excuse me, were encouraging, at least insofar as people started talking about power again and about the state and about the organizations necessary to take power, which doesn't sound like much. But it's a little bit more than what preceded it. Yeah, I mean, I think one way, to, just to draw it back to what we were talking about, the you know the the um, defeat of the working class. Maybe one way to think about this is like this is what a kind of left looks like without the working class or with a defeated, d disorganized working class, because you end up having these movements which quite quickly reveal themselves to have very sufficiently like central class contradictions that they 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 sink themselves more or less quickly and more or less spectacularly. So in the book, we kind of we try and draw this out and say that, like following this trajectory, what's going to what could you predict for the left in the coming decade? 
and the I think the idea that well, what we try and call it there is moral minoritarianism. Like, what do you have when the left seems to be a project which is not not a democratic one, not one grounded in popular sovereignty, but based in kind of moral claims around environmentalism, around kind of anti-fascism, anti-racism, but not seeking to mobilize people instead to go through um, kind of non-democratic and non-majoritarian political processes. And that's how you get how you get power. So, I mean, I think there's, you can see that trajectory from kind of Syriza, Podemos, Corbynism, if you project that into the future, you can start to think, well, there's, there's, you know, there are some, some probably quite central class contradictions um, in what we might call the left today. Then I was thinking, so in the moment of Sanders and Corbyn, like suddenly socialism was on everyone's lips or anyone that felt that they were left-leaning or something considered themselves a socialist. But what if these, the abuse of these terms take us further from the goal of achieving socialism? Or if we cannot attempt to clarify what they might mean, then we regress further. The way you sort of put this, like everybody was suddenly a, a socialist, I think it was, that was really like a, a striking period and something which happened quite quickly. And there was a lot of energy. Um, but, you know, the, the Corbyn moment, the, Sa- the Sanders moments, these are like, there, there was something which hadn't really had um, a precedent in the 25 odd years um, prior to that. But I think the the distinction that I would make was that the, and this relates to this idea of socialism, is that the these movements treated the working class as object of politics, not subject of politics. And so you had these kind of like, let's give everybody UBI welfare, broadband, let's give people stuff, let's help the worst off in society. But in terms of working class self-government, this was um, not this was not only just not possible within those projects. It was actually like Corbyn <laughs> tacked behind a second referendum. If you want to have a, a clearer kind of opposition to popular sovereignty, that you, it'd be very difficult to find. And you might say that socialism's always been the combination of of those kind of two aspects. But certainly the the, the working class as subject didn't really seem to be something that these movements could could consider or, or, or promote politically, I wouldn't say. The term comes up in the book, um, anti-politics. Maybe if you could explain briefly what you mean by this. Yeah, so I mean, anti-politics is something which is very much of the moment. And it's something which is a definition which is um, not dry, not meant to be somehow trans-historical or even um, something which has existed over the course of, you know, let's say the 20th century. It's something very much of the specific period of the end of history, because what it is, is it's a initially a reaction against and a denunciation of not just specific parties or specific political forces, but of the political establishment as a whole. And sometimes even beyond that, not just the determined establishment, but the very processes and ideas of politics. Now, what does that actually mean concretely? So, you know, the obviously most obvious form of, of anti-politics is, is populism, right? Which is ends up being a, a sort of, and there's an element of sort of catch-all rejection to it, which doesn't neatly align to any of the sort of necessarily grand traditions of politics. They're not clearly liberal or clearly socialist or clearly conservative, but often an amalgam of all those things. But what kind of unites it is its negativity, right? It's opposition to uh, to the rejection of the institutions of formal politics. Um, And so what's paradoxical or really contradictory about anti-politics is that 
what it opposes itself to is kind of post-politics, which is to say that strategy of depoliticization that has been wielded by political establishments throughout the post-Cold War period, throughout the end of history, the attempt to take important decisions about how society is run, about how uh, wealth is distributed uh, and who owns what uh, into um, kind of outside of the realm of majoritarian institutions, right? So obviously, classically, uh, the independence of central banks is, is you know, the key um, kind of post-political maneuver. And then and castigating anyone who opposes any sort of sense of post-politics as necessarily kind of just a malcontent, or if not racist or sexist and so on. And so anti-politics anti-politics actually has a is, has a politicizing kind of edge to it because it in a moment where only consensus is supposedly allowed it kind of says no fuck you you know it says no we reject that um and it's uh, in a world of many yeses a no is quite important you know to reintroduce that element of negativity but um our argument is that anti-politics because it emerges at a point where there is no real left there is no working class movement and politics is very atomized and, you know, it's something that emerges after the age of mass politics, that there's no kind of idea behind which anti-politics can really rally. So it ends up being kind of corrosive of itself as a movement. So if you, can, if you think of any of these popular kind of explosions on the streets across the world over the past decade, um, if you think of like Chile in 2019, um, anti-corruption protests in Iraq, uh, you can think of even Brexit in, 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 to a certain extent, uh, even the movement maybe behind Trump had certain elements of this. And so their popular uprisings in, mo- in moments which might be otherwise described even as proto-revolutionary, but without a revolution and without revolutionaries. And so that rejectionism is something that not just a- applies to the political establishment. You say, great, let's get rid of them. Fine with that. I think any revolutionary uh, movement would have aspirations to do that. But it also ends up being corrosive of those very same, uh, the organizations which should carry the revolution or progress or whatever it might be, because it puts into question political authority, political leadership, and even representation. Um, so any, in these anti, big anti-political moments, any kind of leader who rises up to try to speak for, for the crowd ends up being kind of falling foul of, of that same anti-politics. And so that's why we say it's, it's such a dangerous kind of double-edged sword, I guess, anti-politics. So you say that anti-politics is rejecting a political representation. But I was just wondering that Trump and uh, Brexit, for instance, or I felt Trump was very much running on these deindustrialized towns in the US where people have been put out of work and are living in poverty. And uh, and he ran on this idea of jobs for working peoples uh, or job creation. Like whether or not that he succeeded is besides the point. But I mean, in terms of like what his what he was running on or his appeal at that moment. So I felt people were seeking some kind of, um, they they wanted their labor reconstituted. Yeah, he also, but he also said drain the swamp, right? It wasn't like yeah. it was, um, there was an important element of, I think of the Trump project, which was, as you said, which had, it, it was a response to a real economic need and a real sense of disempowerment, but it it wasn't straightforwardly, a one grounded in kind of representative institutions here you had somebody who was um actually very effective at pointing out the the many 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 problems with the with the clinton campaign but i think it's not you know it's not it's a bit more there was there were definitely these elements of like anti-corruption which anti-corruption is a classic kind of anti-political 
um, strategy because it basically says they're all the they're all the same except me. Like you know, I I can be your avatar, the people like not not a not a specific class, but just the people. I can be your avatar and I can you know get rid of them. In in Brazil, this was a very effective uh, strategy, and I think you know to a certain extent was part of the Trumpist project as well. So, what are the phenomena of Trump, Brexit, Sanders, and Bernie? We've touched on this, but what do they mean in the absence of a true left politically organised for the goal of socialism? I mean, they're condi- they're conditioned by the absence of of a left. I mean, it's almost in the definition, right? Like this is what politics looks like in the absence of a left. Uh, and maybe you know Bernie and Corbyn, maybe in their own, in their and their own supporters' self conception, imagined it to the, be the rebirth of a left. It wasn't to be, and we can I guess get into the specific contradictions and, and reasons why those things failed, or why perhaps they were always going to fail. So it's kind of a question there. But um, but I think it, I guess the point that we're trying to make, and that in my kind of uh, thing of answering about anti politics, is that anti politics is what kind of popular politics looks like in an age where you don't have mass politics and you don't have a left so it's this kind of vehicle for the expression of discontent without the ability to construct an alternative yeah and you saw some some quite like interesting like historical and political phenomena like take take for example brexit this was not the first time that the the britain's membership of the of eu or or europe in general had been posed and you saw the the left basically changed positions like from uh, over the course of of the of the 80s and 90s like this these really striking changes occurred and you know detailed in for example Richard Tuck's left case for Brexit who was on sorry to plug the podcast who was on our podcast uh, we talked about in the reading club and on the podcast and it's like well this is what happens without I, I mean I'm, I'm not sure about this idea of the true left we could maybe talk about this a bit but without that kind of link to working you know working class movement you then end up with the entirety of the left not just getting behind uh, the eu which is a you know a capitalist project if ever there was one but also pulling out some of the kind of the the dirtiest tricks against people who were um in favor of brexit so you ended up with a with a left that was um uh, four square against against popular sovereignty which you know is is how i think ever you would define the left clearly one of the the central concepts to it what do you mean by the left and popular sovereignty so i guess it depends how you would define the left whether it's a conceptual or a historical definition but one thing that you could say is that if you have the first left around the period of the french revolution this was all extend about extending popular sovereignty not fully um then a second left in the over the course of the 19th century you know this is to be very very crude about it but this was trying to extend popular sovereignty in terms of having increased decision making over economic processes and now you have a a situation where take take Syriza take um take Corbynism where you have these uh, left populist movements which are seeming to put themselves in conflict with with kind of democratic expressions so i mean it's a you know quite a crude picture to draw there but i think you can you could it, you it, you would be yeah, I think it would be acceptable for you to be surprised to, you know, if you were somebody on the British left, for example, in the in the 70s to, to be told that this is where the, the British left would end up in the 2010s and 2020s to be extremely pro a an institution that has a um, a, an encasement of of uh, economic decisions from from democracy as it's as it's raison d'etre, which is the EU.
the, the pinnacle of the kind of, of, of neoliberal institutions, you might even say. So why is it important for the left to be politically organized with the aim of socialism? I was thinking about historically for the best revolutionaries with the Second International, this idea of it being a tool for deepening the crisis of the social relations of labor. It seems like the left today avoids or obscures the question of the dictatorship, of the proletariat as well. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd be, you know, kind of interested to know what you think of that because obviously this is something that I, I mean obviously you know having followed what platypus is doing for for a number of years um it's obviously a, you know ongoing preoccupation and i i find it i find that an, an interpretation interesting we maybe have a slightly different one i think the difficulty ultimately is and i guess it depends where on what uh words you put emphasis on on your question whether it's uh is it important for the left to be politically organized or is it important to be politically organized with the aim of socialism um so i mean i'm I'm, one I'm, i'm curious what uh i guess where you were heading with that question um, uh, thinking back to Marx, that that the crisis of social relations weren't going to overcome themselves just like working itself out, but it would yeah. re- require like an act on behalf of society or a greater part of society becoming conscious of the the crisis of the social relations of labor and through um, political struggle realizing and like negating it in freedom or like a crisis of this crisis of freedom that would need to be taken up politically i mean i think you could say that the the left today probably would would argue that it is politically organized with the aim of socialism i mean perhaps with the aim of eco-socialism or there would be a um there would be a uh, a kind of qualifier there yeah yeah but i think the like I think you you have to return to the material conditions again, and if if there is like as we were talking about, and I think as the book the book tries to give a bit of um, a history to, like if the if representative politics has been hollowed out, if the working class has been politically and symbolically defeated, then what socialism will mean will will change. And you know I talked earlier about working class as object of politics, and that is a you know you could stretch the definition of socialism and in fact i think it is being stretched today to to include that i mean and not to include power but to include you know material goodies so i mean not to kind of make light of material improvements but you know it's about power it's about taking control of society and it's about increasing freedom through doing that and if you talk about the dictatorship of the proletariat today i think people like the left will look at you like, no, nah, that's not for us. That's that's not what we're about necessarily. So I guess the, the question then becomes, how do you like, how do you respond to that? So in the book, we talk more about how, like what, what this, what could happen in the future or what, what some of these, traject- what some of these things could be. But there is, you know, at the same time as there being that intellectual question of what are these class forces and how do they balance each other out um, or not, like there is a, practical political question which is obviously much more difficult and much more important about how do you like how do you reckon like what do you do about the current role that the left plays in in contemporary politics and and how do you try and change that what i see as the contemporary left like eco-socialism or what i see coming out of the left seems to me to reconstitute capitalism in in new ways rather than an attempt a kind of like a utopian attempt to overcome it and so the idea that that we could transform this society or overcome this society seems to be like not on the horizon or not in vision and sometimes the left feels more conservative than um they're right in some ways you know absolutely absolutely and and there's an often a desire to go back to a status quo ante and recoiling from 
the possibility of rupture because met rupture is messy. And so when faced with those moments and that possibility, and, you know, George has already referred to a couple of them, with even with Brexit and with uh, Syriza. So that's not a departure from capitalism or, you know, um, setting off on a new path. But it does, but it would mean a, a very substantial institutional break with uh, this economic constitution that is the EU. So that in a very important moment, the left often recoiled from that because it saw its role largely as effectively providing some sort of order and stability and recoiling from the possibility of the amount of dislocation that it would cause. And, it, and these are very difficult things. And I think we have to be honest about the fact that any revolutionary moment, you know, would involve breaking eggs to make a, uh, a, a dictatorship of the proletariat omelette to, <laughs> to mash together some things that don't necessarily fit together. But, um, and, and, but anyway, the, I think the point being is that it often ends up hiding behind the idea that uh, this will cause a lot of difficulty for a lot of people and that we need to protect people. And that left-wing instinct, not of actual kind of empowerment or taking control, but of protecting people from consequences, indicates or, you know, is very much in line actually with what you were asking, Sophia, about whether the left is kind of capable or even interested in, in transcending the current conditions. I think, it, yeah, I think just, just to add on to that, it's also a symptom or, or a consequence of, of weakness and, and defeat. And I think like if, if we, so in the book, we talk a little bit about like what what what, what could happen in the next decade of, of political conflict. And I think it's quite clear that there's a certain sort of like you could call it state capitalism or that's what we do in the book or failed state capitalism like there's going to be high expenditure high investment programs um which you know essentially try to perform some sort of fundamentally conservative um function of 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 maintaining capitalism or at least delaying the crisis a little bit so i think all of this is basically to say that if the left has a role in kind of opposing the right then there's a there's probably going to be that dynamic as well where the right is quite dominant is in a is in a strong position so what do you do in that situation how do you avoid being outflanked by for example in 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 the us or the uk by a government that's prepared to to put its hand in its pocket and junk austerity quite quite um easily i mean where do how do you provide a um a critique yeah. of that if, if you're on on the left without if you don't have recourse to some of those kind of those concepts around dictatorship with proletariat, working class, self-government, all of those sorts of things, it, it then becomes a bit more, yeah, as you sort of said, it's kind of trying to preserve some of the more progressive aspects of the of the recent past, which um, I don't think is a majoritarian project or, or it'd be really be very very difficult to see how that could be the case before we wind down i did want to bring in hegel who does feature in your book what struck me is that you bring in this figure of hegel um, but not so much marx who um whose project precisely inherits hegelianism um and addressed its crisis with the crisis of bourgeois society um with the advent of the industrial revolution so I wanted to ask, what happened to Marx, or why Hegel? Oh, good, good, good questions. Starting with Hegel, I mean, I think you do have to to be. Uh, and I'm not saying like you ha- like Lenin, you have to go and read um, phenomenal phenomenology of spirit um, to be a proper Marxist, but well, maybe it's not. It, it can't hurt. But I think the yeah, I guess the question of the end of because we start with the end of history. It's like this is a, an idea that obviously comes from you know through um Kojev, who's a, a more or less obscure um hegelian to to fukuyama that's part of his kind of intellectual framework but i don't i don't 
yeah, maybe I, I don't really know how to answer the question because you can always have you can always have more marks. I mean, there's yeah, maybe we should have had should have put more in. It's kind of given by the material and by the task that we'd set ourselves. So, I mean, it's the book isn't a manifesto. I'm, I apologize if to anyone who maybe has bought the book looking for it to be a manifesto. But what it what it's trying to do is kind of ground our current moment and put it in, in conversation with what has been, I guess, the the dominant way of of politics, whether people have been conscious of it or not. And, you know, I think Fukuyama, at least to his credit, was conscious of it, whatever um, other missteps he he made or misinterpretations of of what the end of history would be. Because as we put in the book, you know, history can't truly end because once the the kind of freedom cat is out of the bag, uh, you can't put it back in. So it'll come back out at some point, right? And I think that's 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 important, right? That the you know Hegel as a philosopher of freedom is one is one way to to look at his you know his thought. And I think that's that kind of relationship between history and freedom. I think is something which obviously preoccupies us a lot um, in the book, and you know obviously beyond the book as well. So I think there is a you know maybe maybe the next one, the next book Marks is um, freedom is. Yeah, yeah. Mar- but there's a, there's also another point, which is that in the interest of being of historical openness, I guess, and the fact that a whole cycle of struggles and organizations and everything that was the the Marxist left um, and that was Marxist politics from the eighteen late eighteen forties until uh, the nineteen eighties has come to an end, and I think there it is a kind of book ended. That doesn't mean that Marx is now irrelevant or or anything like that. I'm not kind of doing that junking of of Marx, which is you know would be very in keeping with uh, whatever the new philosophy and stuff of the seventies and eighties and so on. That's not the that's not the object here, but it's more about the fact that maybe some of those politics have to be reassessed uh, in light of the fact that we are in a genuinely different historical epoch and to be open to what might come next. And to do that, I think we have to at the very least ground ourselves in the possibility of real human freedom. And that should be our starting point. And so in the interest of, of uh, looking at the world anew and being open to what possibilities there might genuinely be for politics and politics that might realize human freedom, you know, that's where we, we start with Hegel, I guess. Yeah, you place emphasis, I, I thought, on what I found to be this Rousseauian, quite Rousseauian idea of a general will, which for someone like Marx, who's like inheriting like this crisis of Hegelian, crisis of Rousseau and the Enlightenment, um, is expressed in society, but in like a deformed way, or it's like perverted, it's in crisis, but would need to be like realized and transcended. Yeah, and I'm just curious, is like, I think I've like tapped into this when I've been talking to Philip as well before. There seems to be like this kind of jump, like little leap over Marx. Um, and it becomes about like correcting the general will or something. I think this is the, the, the difference between Platypus. I don't know if you could expand on this. I have this little quote that I pulled from your book where it's, um, you write, politics is about representa- representation, the funneling of popular interests, desires and dreams into age, uh, to agents endowed with responsibility to just translate uh, those into action, i.e. Uh, people that are representing the general will or politicians or whomever founding fathers uh there's that responsibility is a question of political authority that responsibility is then a question of political authority the legitimate use of coercion uh without which any militancy for a better future will 
will fold. In this sense, um, anti-politics can be depoliticizing. If democratic political authority cannot be established, anti-democratic forms will succeed. So unless we wish politics to be nothing other than an authoritarian measures exercised over crowded masses, politicizing the present is the only way to wedge open the future. So, I mean, maybe Phil, George wants to uh, answer about maybe some of the more specific elements, maybe in relation to Brexit or whatever, about uh, in relation to kind of the importance of, of sovereignty, because I think a lot of those arguments are made in, made in the book in relation to that, uh, to the sort of contradictions around uh, Brexit, for example. But it would be wrong to read what we've written there in as being some kind of uh, Rousseauian defense of the general will or a defense of parliamentary democracy as such or anything like that. I think the point that we're making there is in contradistinction to a lot of, uh, I guess, trendy lefty ideas that have existed over the past 30 years, which is that political leadership isn't important um, and that representation can be dispensed with. So I think all of that, that quote that you read out can be entirely applied, I think, consistently to even a Leninist vision of politics, as well as if you wanted to, as a, as a, defense, of, um, as a defense of bourgeois democracy. Because I think the, the points still apply regardless. And if so, I mean, I think that, and it's a point that in trying to kind of make an argument to a, a wider audience and not just necessary to people who might identify as Leninists or identify as revolutionaries or identify as Marxists, but that it, there's a point about democracy there, which is somehow more fundamental and would apply even if you are a kind of, uh, you know, quote unquote, democratic socialist, um, mm -hmm. where your horizons might be other and, and lower than, than ours might be. No, I, th I think it's a, it was a good a good question that, that that you asked. I mean, I think the one one thing that I've been been sort of thinking about is like you know essentially what what is the task of of Marxism today? Well, I think, and we wouldn't necessarily all three of us agree on this, but I think this idea of pushing bourgeois rights and freedoms to their limit and and beyond them, like like actually aufhebunging them, if if you if you will. <laughs> Like this definitely, this definitely applies to, to to free speech and and to a host of other um, bourgeois freedoms. But democracy is the one that seems, I think, really to draw a line between those who are really concerned to to kind of to push push human freedom forward at this point in time, and people who who are kind of not not prepared to do that or not concerned to do that, even despite their their kind of um, their self perception, perhaps even even. Uh, sometimes that they're, that's what they're doing and so I think this is why you know the ideas of authority political representation um, these are you know these are ones which which are, I think are really are really important today partly because they represent potential dividing lines um, and potential kind of uh, yeah it allows you to distinguish between who's on who's on which sort of side of various um, of various issues. I think it's also probably worth saying that the, you know, in the context of, of you know, of class struggle being not in the same way straightforwardly between like the, an older model. I mean, we talked about this symbolic defeat of the working class earlier. I mean, like what happens in this, in this kind of context, do you have, if you have the, the kind of that lack of that dynamic energy um, that class struggle provides that motor of history in a certain certain way like is there then a potential for the middle class to become more, more organized and to play a greater role in in politics like you know these are some of the, the the tricky questions that we try and like not answer but provide different frameworks to but yeah you're right that um lenin was not an anarchist 
and that the the leftists in the Second International were like organized and you had the SPD, like one of the biggest parties organized for socialism in Germany, Kalkowski. But I guess in that moment, that was this idea of like an imminent dialectical critique and that a political party organized for socialism would like deepen the crisis. Well, if, if, if I can just jump in, I, I would say kind of in response to that, that the reason that we kind of go to a defense of something which seems, if not pre-Marxist, then at least somehow, as you said, jumps over Marx, is that our situation is very grave. And so if there's a message from the book, it's don't panic. Our problems are far more serious than you think. That effectively we need to restate the importance of something like political authority and political representation, things which were taken for granted at the very least on the left, um, which have now kind of fallen by the wayside. So Marx, yes, please, and let's get to a situation in which maybe that becomes then the uh, the thing that we have to return to, I guess. Um, that maybe sounds like I'm, I'm binning Marx too much, and that's stupid, because I think if, if anyone who would read our book would say, well, this has been written by by people who are Marxists at the very at the very least, I think. But um, but the point again to, to kind of restate the problem is that uh, the the situation is very grave and we're in very kind of confused situations. So that's hence that's why I think we have to kind of put an emphasis on restating these kind of basic political operatives. I did have a really cheeky question. I was just wondering because I did I I did see this kind of like um like like this enlightenment idea of kind of um. Rousseau, General Wolf, touched on that. And then, does this explain why you're sympathetic to Brexit and put Corbyn's defeat down to a failure of strategy to appeal to Brexit voters? Winky face. What would a Corbyn victory have meant for the left and its project of freedom? George, you have to answer, but with a winky face, I think. I think you have to kind of stay on the same register, right? So yeah. Do it with a winky face. I, does this explain... Yeah, I mean, maybe it does explain why we're, we're so sympathetic to Brexit. I think the... I mean, maybe this is like the. I I do think it's the, the the signal kind of political event, even more than the the election of Trump, that that kind of signals this new uh, era of the end of the end of history. I mean, I don't think of Corbyn victory. You know, was it a, was it a failure in strategy? I I would go for a more cynical explanation. It was the it was the class interests and prejudices of the people who supported the Corbyn project that ultimately told out, and that was a an essentially anti working class on the basis of cultural and political distaste and a, and a sympathy for a kind of a sacralized, as Wolfgang Strake might put it, EU. I mean, I don't, I, did, I don't think Corbyn victory was ever really possible because that, the core of, of the Corbyn Labour Party, I don't think would ever have, have been able to, to accept the, the, the political impetus behind Brexit, which in, in more or less, um, distorted form was was a potential for increased popular sovereignty and popular sovereignty requires national sovereignty i mean there is a there is a, a necessity to go through through the nation state as a as a as a, a vehicle of decision making and i think that is something that's that's was very distasteful um for a whole range of reasons to 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 the corbyn project sorry i'm not i'm not maintaining the winky <laughs> face um tone that was that was like the opposite i'm sorry <laughs> but, to, but but he, to not to not maintain that at all to fail completely to maintain that but, tone. But here, here's the thing though i mean i think just in reference quickly to what George was saying about middle-class politics. Th this is something maybe which isn't so new, which is that there's always been a tendency within 
a kind of middle a certain left-wing middle-class politics of uh, rejection and wanting to see the back of the political not just politically but the seeing the seeing the back of the elite seeing the, the of challenging or even deposing the work the ruling class but without actually empowering the working class right and so a, an attempt to kind of seek consensus and a kind of whole society in which the middle class remains dominant i.e not really going through with the rupture necessary um, and pulling full strength behind the working class. So it's kind of like, yeah, we hate the Tories, we hate the rich, but at the same time, not really willing to kind of see through the full uh, logical consequences of Brexit, which would be be full self-rule. And I think that's something which... Yeah, I mean, you can see it in, in the kind of in certain kind of middle class politics of the interwar period, even. So in that regard, maybe not so new. What are the main takeaways leftists should take from your book in trying to make sense of the current climate or impasse? Well, I mean, I'm going to repeat myself. Don't panic. Things are a lot worse than you think they are, which is important because and to break that down don't panic because first of all there's a lot of scary seeming things out there but actually those things which might look scary which uh you know sometimes people label as the return of fascism or the return of racism or you know this complete breakdown or chaos actually is the best thing that's happened in a little while um because it's a moment of opening and it's and that moment of breakdown of the neoliberal order um at least provides a moment of opportunity at the very least and i guess that's the the, the minimum that we should uh, look for but also that things are a lot more serious things are a lot more worse than you think they are uh in the sense that um we are having to in some sense reinvent politics from scratch and in that sense we have to be open to to new things that that emerge and not uh, kind of come in with predetermined ideas of, of what fits into such and such a model. And I think you could even say that the failures of the left over the past decade um, have been a product of the attempt to wedge con- current material reality and current popular forces such as they are into uh, the straitjacket of 20th century forms and to uh, therefore kind of uh, break out of that straitjacket would be a good start. Would you like to add anything to that, George? I think the maybe to kind of take a step back from the like the book and and the the podcast and what we've tried to do over the last like four and a bit years. I think the an, an acceptance that thing that some of those older models don't don't work in quite the same way. I think is 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 important. And some of the the concepts we talked about, like authority representation, like some of these um, things, which I think have a um, have been treated with a, a lot of distaste during a kind of horizontalist period of like say 80 89 to 2015 like you know what what does it what does it look like when we start to take these these things seriously are they compatible with with the left as it as it is currently constituted in in kind of material terms cool thanks for joining me thank you it's fun yeah thanks very much for having us yeah it was fun some tricky questions in there as well so thank you for those If you're enjoying the Ship Platypus Says podcast, be sure to share it, rate it, and write a review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter, we're Platypus Says, and we're also Ship Platypus Says on Instagram.
This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Villaggi. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye!